0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Governor Jared Polis is in the midst of signing bills related to stimulus money, mental health, and ketamine. On today's show, we'll talk about a variety of bills past this legislative session. Plus, we'll hear about a new scholarship program for students from underrepresented communities who are pursuing careers in healthcare.
1: They're gonna have an opportunity to get into a career that provides a long-term living wage and lots of opportunities for career growth.
0: That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Governor Jared Polis is signing bills this week passed in the recently completed legislative session with several stops in northern Colorado on Tuesday. Polis signed a $5 million stimulus bill promoting soil health and renewable energy programs at a solar farm in Longmont. In Evans, he signed another $5 million measure, offering incentives to companies creating jobs in rural areas. Other signings are happening in Greeley, Fort Collins, and Fort Morgan. The six stimulus bills getting the okay on the tour will spend more than $65 million on a variety of programs. The biggest funds wildfire prevention efforts. Polis has many more signing ceremonies planned for the coming days. Lawmakers passed more than 500 bills this session. He still has to take final action on several gun measures and a $5.4 billion transportation package. Other bills that he's expected to sign deal with mental health. Over the past year, Coloradans have been more anxious, depressed, and lonelier than usual. Kids, many home from school for months on end, have suffered too. Last month, with their emergency departments flooded with kids in crisis, Children's Hospital Colorado declared a state of emergency for pediatric mental health. Lawmakers approved a handful of bills meant to do something about all of this. And we're going to bring in KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson to talk about those. Hey, Lee. Hey there. Let's start with SB 137. This is the Behavioral Health Recovery Act. Tell us what's in that.
2: Yeah, it's a big one. And it basically puts money towards a little bit of everything. The price tag for this year is $112 million. About a fifth of that goes to mental health services for young people specifically. So school-based health centers, crisis services for kids, that sort of thing. Even more money is going to broader programs to improve how care is managed, to provide training for people who work in mental health, to increase services in jails and to provide more substance use disorder treatment, including in rural communities. How is this being funded? Well, that's actually changed quite a bit during the legislative session. The original price tag on the bill was $34 million dollars. Then the legislation was cut down to a fraction of that, about a third. Some lawmakers were very, very concerned about the cost of this bill. Then federal stimulus money came through, which added $100 million into that pot, bringing us basically to where we are now. A large bill with lots of money going to a wide variety of services.
0: What else passed in this session directly related to kids?
2: There's a bill requiring insurance companies to cover yearly mental health checkups You in the same way physicals are covered. This takes effect in January, and it does apply to kids. Another bill offers young people up to three free therapy sessions. This bill came in direct response to the pandemic and the mental health crises related to the pandemic. This program should be up and running by the start of the school year. A couple other pieces of legislation to note uh, that don't directly apply to kids necessarily, a bill creating the 988 number. So that is like 911 for a mental health crisis instead of a medical emergency. Another bill restricts the use of solitary confinement in Colorado jails for a variety of types of people, including those with a serious mental illness. And there's another bill that's particularly relevant for some of our northern Colorado communities, and this legislation creates a program to organize the behavioral health response after a disaster, so making sure there are services available to people after something like a wildfire or a mass shooting, for example.
0: Well, a lot of legislation there. Tell us what happens next.
2: These bills are waiting for the governor's signature. In terms of the federal stimulus dollars that I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, there's a lot more work being done on that. $3.8 billion from the American Rescue Plan, which was passed by Congress, is coming to Colorado. The state's planning on spending around $500 million of that on behavioral health, you know, with, you know, big plans to remake the system in some form, which is a big, big job. There's a task force that is getting together right now. They'll meet over the summer to make recommendations on how that $500 million should be spent. That info will be sent over to the governor and to lawmakers to consider uh, in January um, during um, the budget process. Do you have any idea of what the spending priorities for this task force might be? It's too early to know the task force hasn't actually been formed yet. But Mental Health Colorado, which is a high profile advocacy organization here, they sent um, recommendations to lawmakers. Those recommendations focus entirely on the desperate need for mental health beds. So, that's everything from inpatient beds, you know, for people who need 24 uh, 7 crisis monitoring essentially, to the residential beds, which are uh, facilities that are a bit more like a, a home environment. Now, bed shortages here have been a problem for quite some time, but again, we just don't know at this point how that money will actually ultimately be spent.
0: Interesting. So, despite the circumstances you've been describing, you know, including ERs being flooded by kids in crisis, much of the stimulus dollars we're talking about going towards behavioral health isn't going to be spent immediately.
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, I do think it's important to remember that COVID has certainly exacerbated, and in many cases, created. Mental health issues. But this whole thing has also just exposed what's been going on for a really, really long time that people here are not getting the mental health help that they need. And that was a theme that came up again and again during legislative committee hearings on these mental health bills that we've just been discussing.
0: KUNC's mental health reporter, Lee Patterson. Lee, thanks for reporting on this. You're welcome. Another bill that we are waiting to see if the governor signs deals with the use of the powerful sedative ketamine. Last week, KUNC's Michael DeJuana spoke with us about a bill that passed to limit its use by paramedics. Now, two members of Colorado's congressional delegation want to enact what essentially would be a national ban. I'm joined by KUNC investigative reporter, Michael DeJuana. Hey, Michael. Hi, Henry. So we're still awaiting word on whether the governor will sign the bill, but briefly remind us what it does again.
3: Yeah, there are lots of provisions in the bill. It's House Bill 1251, which was drafted in part as a response to the death of Elijah McClain. After Aurora police wrestled him to the ground in 2019 and handcuffed him, paramedics sedated him with ketamine, apparently relying on officers' impressions rather than their own diagnostics that McLean had a rare condition called excited delirium. That's all in an independent investigation. Well, his family points to body camera footage saying he didn't have the condition, and the bill passed by the state legislature would limit the use of ketamine in situations like the one involving McLean and police. Paramedics could only use ketamine when police are involved in justifiable medical emergencies. Police would be banned from influencing paramedics, and if a paramedic uses the drug to help police sedate someone, that would be considered misconduct.
0: And as you told us last week, in your investigations with KUNC's Ray Solomon last year, you found that paramedics sedated people 902 times in a two and a half year period for this extremely agitated condition called excited delirium. Tell us about this bill in Congress.
3: You know, our investigation last year was referenced in press releases announcing the bill, which is dubbed the Ketamine Restriction Act. Representatives Joe Neguse and Jason Crow say they are following the lead of Colorado's legislature and are seeking what would be a national ban on these kinds of sedations. During a House Judiciary Committee hearing last week, Neguse asked FBI Director Christopher Wray about the issue.
0: As I mentioned, Mr. McClain was at administered the ketamine by EMS personnel. Uh, In your opinion, are there any acceptable non-medical reasons for law enforcement officers to administer or encourage attending EMS personnel to use sedatives or other medications to subdue a person under arrest?
4: I'm really not comfortable trying to answer a a hypothetical that cuts across such a broad range of possible scenarios. Um, So I'm afraid I'm gonna have to Um, declined to really offer much on that particular
5: subject.
3: Nagus then went on to say that he'd be introducing the bill and he hoped that the FBI would support it. The bill would require local and state law enforcement agencies around the country to certify that they prohibit the use of ketamine for arrest or detention. Those that fail to do so would lose out on funds from the Edward Byrne Justice Grant Program. And that's a big pot of money. In the last fiscal year, $235 million was awarded to agencies Around the country. And there's a long list of supporters who've released statements backing this bill. That includes State Representative Leslie Herod. She's one of the main architects of the state measure that's on the governor's desk. And also an attorney for Elijah McLean's mom, Shanine McLean, issued a statement in support. And as all of this was coming out, the American Medical Association sent me a statement about excited delirium.
0: And what did that statement say?
3: The AMA's House of Delegates now oppose excited delirium as a medical diagnosis and warn against the use of, quote, certain interventions solely for law enforcement purpose without a legitimate medical reason. They go on to name ketamine and raise concern about its justification in cases of excessive police force. They also say it's disproportionately cited in cases where black men die while being detained by police.
0: Michael De is KUNC's investigative reporter. Michael, thanks for the update. You're welcome. Water supplies are so tight in the West right now that many states keep a close watch over every creek, river, ditch, and reservoir. A complex web of laws and rules makes sure water is put to use. To prevent any waste, Colorado has started cracking down on what may seem like a drop in the proverbial bucket. KUNC's Luke Runyon has more.
6: Martin Mendine's family ranch is a wide, grassy expanse near southern Colorado's Spanish peaks. A fork of the Purgatory River meanders through the land, which supports about 100 cattle and herds of elk. Migratory sandhill cranes pass through each year. And uh, in the summer, you'll get lightning bugs right in here. It's wet enough to support all this life, in part because of a cascade of five small ponds, held in place by dams made of dirt. The ponds are more than 80 years old, he says. They were built when his grandfather tended the ranch. So we've been running this water now for, for, you know, damn near a century, and they're telling me I can't, can't use it. They is the state of Colorado. Mendine got a notice recently saying the ponds have been identified as potentially illegal. It says the water rights to create them don't exist. And to be compliant, he either needs to drain them or come up with a state-approved plan to fill them from a different water source.
3: It came to about ten dollars to $15,000 a year per pond to keep them. I don't have that kind of scratch. I'm just trying to water some cattle up here, you know? To him, it seems
6: like a lot of noise over a few tiny ponds. It just doesn't seem
3: like it would be even worth their time.
4: Our basin's been over-appropriated for a long period of time. That's Bill Tyner.
6: He's Colorado's division engineer for the Arkansas River Basin, where Mendine's Ranch is
4: located. Meaning that our natural water supplies are, uh, generally speaking, always less than the uh, demand for water in the Arkansas Basin.
6: Tyner says the state has identified about 10,000 illegal ponds just in his region. He likens it to a string of pearls. Each pearl isn't that valuable or consequential on its own,
4: but when pulled together, it can be worth thousands. The number of puns was overwhelming to the point that we could not afford to not address a situation we, we, um just had to take action. His office is
6: now in the midst of a systematic review of all ponds in the Arkansas basin. Everything from pools for livestock watering to decorative fountains in business parks. The problem, Tyner says, is evaporation. Water in a shallow pond evaporates more than when it's flowing through a narrow stream. And the state views
4: evaporated water as wasted water. Um, some of these bigger ponds can create some awfully big depletions and the cumulative effect of thousands of them um, produces a problem. When the state starts coming for
6: your pond, often the first call is to a water lawyer, like attorney Matt Machado of the front range firm Lyons Gaddis.
5: Some of the landowners that have ponds down there are, they're in a tough spot.
6: A recent dispute over ponds went all the way to the state Supreme Court last year, where the state prevailed. The ponds in question were drained, and the owner was ordered to pay almost $100,000 in fines. Machado's takeaway from that ruling? You know, once the state
5: finds an illegal pond and says you need to drain it, um, you better do it.
6: Martin Mendine understands that the little ponds on his ranch are part of a much bigger watershed.
4: And I am more than willing to to work. I'm malleable. I'll work with them and do whatever I can. But he says
6: drying up the ponds will deprive his cattle of water. That'll hurt the tenant rancher who looks after them and his ability to sell them. Without the ponds, the ranch's viability is uncertain, he says. If you're going to take my life blood, I've got a problem with you. Mendine says he's still looking at different legal avenues to keep the ponds, but hasn't yet retained a lawyer. I'm Luke Runyon in Weston, Colorado.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Foundation for Colorado Community Colleges has announced a $1 million gift from a healthcare industry leader to help diversify the workforce the Kaiser Permanente Colorado Equity Scholarship Fund will provide financial assistance to students from underrepresented communities. KUNC Stephanie Daniel is here with more. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Henry. Tell us more about this initiative. Who is eligible for a scholarship? Well, first off, it's a
7: 15-year endowed fund, and it's for students pursuing certificates or degrees in health care and attend a school in the community college system. Specifically, it's for students who are African-American, Black, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Latino, Hispanic, Native American, LGBTQI, those with a disability or who are a veteran. CCCS Chancellor Joe Garcia says it's important to have scholarships like this.
5: As you know, and as the pandemic demonstrated to the rest of the country, we've seen that our communities of color often lack the health professionals and the healthcare institutions. And as a result, we've seen significant gaps in healthcare service delivery. We wanna make sure that there are more professionals in the field who come from the communities that uh, currently are underserved. And we know that we educate a lot of those
7: students. According to the Foundation for Colorado Community Colleges, studies have shown that increasing diversity in the field of healthcare is a good thing. It enhances patient and provider communication, increases patient trust, and eliminates bias in care delivery they say a diverse workforce could also reduce long standing health disparities experienced by vulnerable populations
0: now as we noted this scholarship is for students who want to pursue careers in healthcare careers like nursing dental hygiene x-ray technology why is this field so important
7: The industry is growing quickly. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says occupations in this field are projected to grow by 15 percent over the next eight years, which is much faster than the average for all occupations. Kaiser Permanente has partnered with CCCS since 2013 to financially support students. Ellen Weaver is the director of community health and engagement in Colorado.
1: One of the things I'm most excited about for this scholarship fund is that it gets Upstream of both the needs of the healthcare industry to have a robust and diverse workforce and also upstream for the individuals who are benefiting from these scholarships because they're going to have an opportunity to get into a career that provides a long-term living wage and lots of opportunities for career growth.
0: So this fund has a dual purpose by serving the students financially and by creating a much stronger and more diverse workforce pipeline of healthcare workers.
7: Exactly. And here's something I found interesting. Chancellor Garcia told me that overwhelmingly students who attend a community college go to the one that is closest to where they live. And when they graduate, they tend to stay in the area. He talked about rural communities and how it's hard to get healthcare professionals to move there for a job. So it makes more sense to educate and train the residents that already live
5: there. The overall goal is to both uh, enroll more students of color in the health professions, but most importantly, to graduate them and return them to their communities where they can both have a better life for themselves because they now have a profession, but more importantly, serve their communities and strengthen those communities in so many ways. So that's our real goal is to help contribute to overall both Uh, physical health, but the economic vitality of our state.
0: And lastly, Stephanie, when can
7: students apply? The Kaiser Permanente Colorado Equity Scholarship Fund will start accepting applications in 2022, and at least 28 scholarships will be awarded
0: statewide each year. All right. That's KUNC's Stephanie Daniel. Stephanie, thanks for joining us.
7: Thanks for having me, Henry.
0: Colorado public schools experienced a decrease in enrollment during the 2020-21 school year due to the coronavirus pandemic. This decline follows a larger, years-long trend in some areas like Denver, where rising house prices are pushing families out. Chalkbeat Colorado reporter Melanie Asmar has been covering declining enrollment. She's with us now to talk about why schools are seeing fewer students and how districts are responding. Melanie, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start with the decline in enrollment that we've seen across the state over the last year, a 3.3 percent decrease, according to state data. Why did fewer students attend Colorado schools during the pandemic?
1: So it's really like a convergence of many different factors, and it's hard to know for sure. But the biggest decreases came in the early grades, for instance, kindergarten enrollment was down more than 9% this year. And anecdotally, we've sort of heard, you know, some parents didn't wanna send their kids to school maybe because they disagreed with mask requirements or they were really frustrated with online instruction and so pulled their children out of the public schools. There were some students who had trouble connecting to online school. Like maybe they don't have reliable internet access at home or support from uh, adults or caregivers to kind of do school remotely. It's really like a bunch of different factors, and it's hard to know.
0: I imagine some of these issues that folks are having might change in the fall as we get further past the pandemic. Are educators or officials thinking that these numbers might bounce back?
1: I definitely think they're hoping they will, but some early indications that we've seen, at least in Denver, show that that's not happening as much as school districts maybe hoped or wanted. So it's hard to know because a lot of times students don't register for school until shortly before the first day of school. But Denver has a school choice system wherein families can choose schools in January and February for the next school year. And so that process happened, and those early indicators sh- don't show the huge bounce back that I think school districts are hoping for.
0: To look a little further out than the fall, Chalkbeat reported that Denver school enrollment was predicted to drop by 6% by 2025. What can you tell us about that prediction?
1: Yeah, this prediction, it's about double the rate that they were predicting before the pandemic. There's all the stuff we've been talking about related to the pandemic, and then there's just an overall trend that's been going on for several years now of declining birth rates and also rising housing prices that are pushing families out of the city of Denver and or preventing new ones from moving in. I mean, in some neighborhoods, a developer will buy up, you know, like a block of houses and, and sort of demolish single family houses and, and build condos or, you know, multifamily housing, but really like like one bedroom units that aren't really conducive for families. And so then there will be fewer children in the neighborhood and fewer children in the schools.
0: And how are school districts there responding to this predicted drop?
1: There are a lot of challenges with having a school that is sort of under-enrolled. Schools in Colorado are funded per student. And so schools that have fewer students have less money, which means they can hire fewer teachers. And, you know, you might think that a school with fewer students might have smaller class sizes, but sometimes that's, that's not the case. Schools that have low numbers of students... Can't afford to hire like gym or art teachers. And so sometimes those classes get cut. And so I think districts who are experiencing declining enrollment are talking about, you know, maybe we need to close some of these small schools or consolidate them, which of course is like anytime you talk about closing schools, that's like a very heated discussion because people, for the most part, tend to really like their schools and want to defend them if they hear they might be closed.
0: Well, just to step out of the Denver metro area into the rest of the state, are you seeing any other areas where enrollment has been declining in the long term?
1: Definitely. You know, statewide, there are one hundred and seventy eight school districts and one hundred and forty one. Of those 178 reported enrollment declines this past school year. The biggest was in District 11 in Colorado Springs. They saw a more than 8% enrollment decline. Some others that saw significant enrollment declines Douglas County, Boulder Valley, Aurora, St. Vrain, Jefferson County. So it's definitely happening all around the state. And I think a lot of districts are just waiting for the fall to see what happens.
0: Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. Melanie, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll take a look at the fire and heat forecast for Colorado through the summer. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado edition from KUNC.